This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. that I end up fielding more email questions about than Bill Burns after he's on this show. People ask me questions about, that was such a wide-ranging interview. Which book should I start with that he's written? Uh, there is so many fascinating things that, uh, that Bill Burns writes about on a daily basis. Obviously, my interest is... Uh, extends to the world of UAPs slash UFOs, and I think he's really one of the foremost authorities on that subject. You might have seen him on shows like uh, Ancient Aliens and a bunch of other shows on the History Channel and elsewhere, but he's written about history, he's written about uh, comedy, he's written about the history of comedy. The guy is a wonderful writer and and somebody that um, is a fascinating, fascinating person to talk to. He is a New York Times best-selling author. He's written many books, including The Day After Roswell. He's been the publisher of UFO Magazine and the editor of the UFO Encyclopedia. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome back Bill Burns. Bill, thanks so much for joining me. Happy New Year. Oh, same to you, Frank. Happy New Year. So it's funny. I was watching Ancient Aliens the other day, and it was an episode that you were on, and it dealt with a subject that we've talked quite a bit about, namely uh, aliens and the presidency and what various presidents, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, uh, so on and so forth, might have known about uh, aliens or UFOs over the years. And I thought you were really interesting in that. But once again, in this piece, in this special the story that I've heard many times before from you and others about Richard Nixon and Jackie Gleason was brought to light. And somebody happened to be in the room uh, that, you know, I had a visitor over, I was watching this, and somebody happened to be in the room and they said to me, I don't believe that story. I don't believe that Jackie Gleason would ever have access to any top secret alien information, even if he did befriend Richard Nixon. Um, For the sake of the skeptics out there, Bill, would you relate that story one more time and uh, reiterate what the sourcing is for that Jackie Gleason, Richard Nixon story? Sure. Uh, Personally, for me, the story came from Jackie Gleason's widow, Barbara Taylor. Barbara Taylor was the sister of June Taylor. Remember the June Taylor dance on the Jackie Gleason show? That was his sister. That was her sister. She was married to Jackie. She told me that when Jackie came back from Florida, um, he was a changed human being. uh, He told her the story of how Richard Nixon picked him up in a car late at night, drove him to the Air Force Base to uh, to see the alien in, um, in deep freeze. And she said he was so shaken. And the fascinating part about that story, Frank, was that um, Jackie Gleason and Richard Nixon were good friends. They were both friends with Bibi Rebozo down in Florida. And Gleason had a library of paranormal books. It was bigger than Shirley MacLaine's paranormal books. He was a firm believer in the paranormal. And Jackie knew that during the Eisenhower administration, there was this story, it was called The Stranger at the Pentagon, that, that was the book, about supposedly an extraterrestrial who claimed he was from Venus and contacted President Eisenhower. 
And Eisenhower, and there's a backstory about that, too, because Eisenhower had actually seen UFOs when he was um, in Operation Mainbrace in the, um, in the North Atlantic, um, in the North Sea, um, off the United Kingdom. It was the first NATO exercise um, in, like, 1951, 1952. Eisenhower actually saw a UFO coming out of the water. So when the stranger supposedly who claimed he was from Venus, his name was Valiant Thor, I don't know where they got that name from, but approached Eisenhower, and Eisenhower said to Nixon, you're in charge of this, take him to the Pentagon. And supposedly that was the alien that Richard Nixon took to the Pentagon. It was 1953 or 54. In Jackie Gleason heard that story, and he was bugging Nixon for 10 years, over and over again. <clears throat> tell us about the alien. Tell us about the guy from Venus. Tell, him, tell us what Eisenhower wanted you to do. <clears throat> and finally, one night in Florida, according to Barbara Taylor, um, Gleason's widow, Nixon shows up at... Jackie Gleason's residence, which is one Secret Service person in the car, nobody else. Gleason is astounded. He, ta- he says, get into the car. They get into the car. They drive to Homestead Air Force Base. The guard at the gate is, is, is thunderstruck to see the president. They let him on the base. Nixon directs the car all the way to a um, distant corner of the base. And there in deep freeze is the body of an alien. And it is the alien that Nixon supposedly took to the Pentagon. Jackie Gleason, who had this fanboy belief in the paranormal, was confronted with the reality of his own beliefs. And Barbara Taylor said his personality completely changed. Then you'd say to me, but it's only Barbara Taylor. Who else did you speak to? I spoke to the head of Sony Television. And he told me that when, in fact, he was the one that told me that I had to investigate the story further and call Barbara Taylor. Because when Jackie Gleason, remember when he came back from Florida, he was in a movie with Tom Hanks called Nothing in Common. And supposedly when he got on that set at Sony Pictures in Culver City, he was poetic about what Richard Nixon showed him. Mm. He told the heads of Sony, told Tom Hanks, told everybody he met, including Barbara Taylor. And they all described the same thing. So, yes, I would believe that story happened. Uh, Well, I do, too, and I believe it as well, and I find it uh, very, very compelling. One of the other um, things that I noted the last time that we spoke on the radio is I received, uh, at the conclusion of our interview, uh, an SMS text message from a pretty prominent politician here in the New York area who listens to this show regularly, and he says, that was great. You should have him on every day. I'm so interested in the UFO issue and the UAP issue. And I said, why don't you ever say that? Why don't you ever talk about that publicly as a a public policy matter? And he says, well, I don't want people to think that I'm a kook and I don't want to run for office being the UFO candidate. Now, Harry Reid pointed out before he passed away, obviously, that he was not hurt at all by his advocacy for uh, the UAP disclosure and things of that nature. You are the, I don't know if it's an elected uh, position, but you are the auditor in Solaberry Township, Pennsylvania. It's, a, it's elected position. It's an elected position. Right. So you, you're an elected official who has mm-hmm. no qualms about talking about this stuff. Why do you think more elected officials and aspiring elected officials around the country aren't more um, in the Bill Burns or Harry Reid mold? Why do you think so many politicians are reticent to talk about this subject publicly, even when they themselves have a sincere interest in it? And the answer to that question comes directly from President Obama. When Barack Obama was on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, remember that? Yes. Um, Jimmy Fallon asked him. 
he kept on pushing him. I couldn't believe it. You know, the president says, there's Jimmy Fallon pushing him. Come on, tell us about UFOs. Tell us about UFOs. And finally, Obama said this, which is why his Netflix special is so interesting. Obama said this, they tell me not to talk about it. Hmm. So he didn't say it's not true, Frank. He didn't say it's a myth. He didn't say it's a joke. He said, I was told not to talk about it. That's funny. Who tells the commander-in-chief of the mm. United States military not to talk about something? It's a great question, and uh, I think it's a perfect segue to our next discussion about this new documentary production. Uh, before we talk about the documentary, I think it might be helpful helpful to some people to understand the context behind Barney and Betty Hill. Who were Barney and Betty Hill? I was friends with Betty Hill. I interviewed her for UFO Magazine, and I, I knew her pretty well. Um, Barney and Betty Hill were an interracial couple. Here is a story. Let me just set this up the way it needs to be set up. The experiences of Barney and Betty Hill not only led to our landing on the moon, but they also led to the assassination of JFK. And here's the story. Barney and Betty Hill were an interracial couple. She was white. She was um, she worked uh, for um, social services. Barney was black, and he was um, he worked for the United States Post Office. They were a couple who lived. This is 1961, Frank. Uh, this was their second marriage. This was 1961. And this was seven years before the Supreme Court decision in Loving versus Virginia, which made um, in uh, which barred the states from prohibiting interracial marriages. Okay, it made interracial marriages legal in the United States, made it constitutional. This is 1961. You remember. Um, maybe you don't. 1961 it was the beginning of the civil rights movement in the South. Birmingham, the, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, all those things were happening in the South. The South was exploding. So Betty and Barney Hill decide, let's get out of here. They live in New Hampshire, Portsmouth. Let's get out of here. Let's go up to Canada for a vacation. So they hop in the car, pack up their belongings, go up to Canada for a quick vacation. As they're driving home back to New Hampshire, they see a light over their car, and they think, ah, the moon's very bright tonight, driving along. But the light seems to be following them. Wherever they go, there's a light, and they're driving along roads they know. Finally, as the light seems to be getting bigger, what they do is they pull into this place, and I was there. It's called the Franconian Notch. It's a ski resort. And they they get out of the car and they stand and they're looking at this thing circling in the sky. Suddenly, the light, which is a circular light, stops dead in the sky, Frank. Dead in the sky. It's not a helicopter. There's no sound. And then they get nervous. And the light seems to grow bigger. And Barney says to Betty, because Betty told me this, they're following us. They see us, Barney says. They hustle back in their car and they take off. For some reason, Barney turns the car off on a side road. Suddenly, the object is hovering directly over the car, moves in front of them, and lands. Now, Barney is panic-stricken. He doesn't know what the hell this is. He draws his gun. Betty, he says to Betty, get out, run. She gets out of the car. She tries to run. She's grabbed. She's wearing a black dress. She's grabbed by these small, gray, humanoid creatures. Um, they drag her into a clearing. Barney, that's where she sees Barney. He's being dragged into a clearing. Suddenly, from the trees, a kind of a gangplank drops down. It's a ship. They're taken aboard the ship, and their memories end. The next thing they know, now this is conscious memory. The next thing they know, Frank, 
they're at the edge of their own, on a road they know leading into their own driveway. And they look at the clock on the car, and two and a half hours have passed. Mm. And they can't account for that time. The next morning, Betty calls her sister. And on the phone is her niece, Kathleen Martin, a friend of mine. Who's been a guest on the show who's really great, a very informative lady. Yes. And Betty tells her the entire story up until she sees Barney at the ramp. So the the idea that they didn't know what was happening to them, they knew what was happening because she told her her niece. Barney is... First of all, Barney has high blood pressure. He's got hypertension. And he starts getting all these physical symptoms. He can't sleep at night. He's constantly nervous. He's irritable. Um, He can't eat. And they take him to a doctor, and the doctor finds nothing physically wrong with him. And he says, I can't sleep. I can't eat. I'm I'm nervous. I'm not doing my job at the... Doctor says, I have an idea. Goes to a psychiatrist. And that's when Barney explains what they saw on the road. The psychiatrist says, I know exactly who you should speak to. I know the person. Do you remember the movie, Frank? It was called Captain Newman, M.D. Sure. It was with Bobby. Okay. And this doctor was would treat pilots who had PTSD, and they would get them back in, in the uh, B-17s to go bomb again. Um, he was a flight doctor, a flight surgeon. They take Barney goes to this guy Benjamin Simon, renowned psychiatrist, very renowned psychiatrist, and he regresses Barney and Betty, and puts it on tape, records the session, but doesn't tell tells them to forget about it when they wake up. For, never for, forget about it. But the tapes still exist, and he has a transcriber. This young lady who types in shorthand, who writes that in shorthand what's on the tape, and then transfers the shorthand to a type script. She's a typist, sonographer. And she is so, bl- she hears the story of what happened. They're taken aboard a spacecraft, they're examined by extraterrestrials. Betty is shown a star map where they came from. It's a very cordial. It's a very cordial um, interaction. They examine Betty. They examine Barney. They examine Barney. They want to see his sperm. How do you have children? And they deposit him back in the car and send him home. Betty tells the story, and Barney tells the story as they regress. When they wake up, they don't remember it. The transcriber is so goes so crazy over this story, she takes it to a reporter for the Boston Traveler magazine. He gets so crazy. He says, I can't believe this. He takes it to the Boston newspapers. They publish the story. Now get this. Betty and Barney Hill still don't know what happened aboard the craft because they were told to forget it, not to remember the session. When they read about it, it's the first time they're reading about it. And then they find out that the Air Force, from Peace Air Force Base, Peace Air Force Base in New Hampshire, they're investigating it. Then they find out that other people have seen that same light in New Hampshire. So there's proof all over the place that it was real, Frank. Barney gets sicker and sicker. And finally, he dies from high blood pressure. And Betty travels the country holding her big UFO Mm -hmm. head um, and telling the story. That story, this is 1961. Now they're on the cover of Look Magazine, an interracial couple, get this, at a time when interracial marriages are not legal in the United States, an interracial uh, couple on the cover of Look Magazine talking about being abducted by aliens. 
Obviously, that's what's on the cover of Look Magazine. It's as fascinating a an experience as I've ever heard, and I give this couple a great deal of credibility. And I don't see what uh, interest anybody would have to concoct something that um, <laughs> that you know it really seems there's pretty compelling proof of. And the story gets worse. Well, I was going to ask about the, the Kennedy uh, about the Kennedy situation, Kennedy. John F. Kennedy. Exactly, right. John F. Kennedy is the president. John F. Kennedy hears the story, get this, hears the story of Betty and Barney Hill, then says, we have to go to the moon. Okay? Two and two equals four. Then, when Kennedy is having, when Kennedy breaks up with Marilyn Monroe, he's having an affair with Marilyn Monroe. We all know this. This is not fake. We know this. Um... He's having an affair with Marilyn He breaks up with Marilyn Monroe, who calls Bobby Kennedy at the Justice Department, and here's what she says. How do we know she says it? J. Edgar Hoover thought that Marilyn Monroe was a mob mall because of the Rat Pack. Sure. Right? He thought she was the mob, controlled by the mob. And that was one. The other person was um, Dulles. Who believe that? Um, who believe that? Um, who believe that um, Kennedy was in bed with the mob? Joe Kennedy was in bed with the mob. We know that he was friends with Meyer Lansky during Prohibition. They were uh, they were importing booze into New York Harbor. So um, he's taping Marilyn Monroe's phone call to the Justice Department. So this tape of Marilyn Monroe is transcribed by both the CIA. And the FBI. It's in my book, UFOs in the White House. I reprinted it. The Marilyn Monroe says to Bobby Kennedy, she leaves this message. I know that your brother is talking about the secret air base in Nevada, Area 51, and that there are things from outer space that they keep there. And there are little men from outer space who live there. That's what Marilyn Monroe says on tape. Mm. A few months later. She is suicided. She's given a bunch of drugs that put her into a coma. She drinks. Peter Lawford is at the house, and he tells the maid not to wake her up, and she dies that night. She's gone. Kennedy has this – JFK has this really bad habit of, when he goes to New York, slipping away from his Secret Service detail and hooking up with women around Columbus Circle near the Carlisle Hotel. Um, the Secret Service is beside itself. He could be abducted by the Soviets, right? Um, taken away. He sure. knows all the nuclear secrets. So they're worried. So, but Kennedy has also revealed to Marilyn Monroe one of the deepest state secrets that the United States, at an air base in Nevada, has UFOs and live aliens. After Marilyn, after Marilyn Monroe is suicided, Kennedy is assassinated. And Nixon continues the Kennedy – and they were good friends, by the way, in the Senate. Sure. Uh, Nixon, and the um, House, by the way. And the House. And Nixon um, extends Kennedy's uh, mandate and takes us to the moon in, 1960, in 1969. That's the importance of Betty and Barney Hill. Uh, they started something. I'm going to ask now, you to pause is, there. Why are the Obamas doing this? Well, I'm going to ask you to pause before you answer that question. We're talking with Bill Burns. Talking about the fascinating case of Barney and Betty Hill. Uh, abducted in 1961. There's a new documentary on Netflix that will be out soon on their whole story. This documentary is produced by the production company headed by Barack and Michelle Obama. Why would they do this? Do they know something that we don't? We're going to explore that with Bill Burns in a moment. If we, if there's time, we'll try and take as many of your calls as we can. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Two 
flew down to earth one day Looked to left and right of it Couldn't stand the sight of it And said, let's fly away They took a look at a western movie Somebody heard them say The great Elwood Fitzgerald, a, a velvet voice a star, if ever there was one. We are talking with UFO researcher and New York Times best-selling author William Burns for another edition of... The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. of Barney and Betty Hill, which will soon be the subject of a new Netflix documentary produced by the production company headed by Barack and Michelle Obama. Well, uh, you may recall an appearance that President Obama made about a year and a half ago on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, where the question of aliens or UFOs or UAPs, whatever you want to call the broad area that we're discussing here, where that question came up. Listen to Colbert's question and listen to Obama's response. Any UFOs? Did you ask about that? Certainly asked about it. And? Can't tell you. Sorry. Okay. All right, I'll take that as a yes. Because if there were none, you'd say there was none, right? (laughs) You just played your hand. I thought you were a poker player. You just 100% showed your river card. Feel feel free to think that. I do. I do. (laughs) That's so much there, that makes it, me happy to can, think can that I you won't say, tell me about Can UFOs. I say it used to be that UFOs was the, uh, and, and uh, what is it, Roswell was the biggest conspiracy? Yeah. And now that seems so tame, right? Right. The idea that right. uh, the government might have an yeah. alien spaceship, that's now the biggest Now the biggest conspiracy is people in Michigan vote. <laughs> Uh, Bill Burns, what do you make of Barack Obama's comments on this subject since leaving the presidency? And what do you think that tells us about their decision? Look, they're one of the hottest production companies in the country. They have, um, you know, a massive multi-million dollar budget. They could produce documentaries about whatever subject they want and not have to worry about Netflix uh, showing them. Why would they choose to focus on the case of Barney and Betty Hill? Number of issues. One. Something's up. Could it be that since the essence of the story is not the interracial marriage, but the essence of the story is a UFO abduction, are the Obamas seeding the water for UFO disclosure? That's the uh, that's one obvious thought. Here's the second obvious thought. Barack Obama is the product of an interracial marriage, correct? His father came from Africa. His mother was a white woman in Hawaii. He was the product of that marriage. And that defined the early part of his politics and the early part of his presidency. He wrote books about it, right? Um, um, uh, So could it be that his exploration of Betty and Barney Hill and a seemingly unrelated event, like they didn't do anything to cause this abduction. They only went on vacation and stopped to look at a light in the sky, and that's and they and that put them on the cover of Look magazine. I mean, and that eventually killed Barney Hill. Is it? Is that the aspect of the interracial marriage being so fascinating to America? Or, if it's not disclosure, and it's not that, is it something else? And here's the something else. We know, I mean, there is a theory that the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill and other types of abductions, strap in, this is really scary, that those abductions are not alien abductions at all, but they're what are called military abductions. This has been written about, they're called my labs. 
and that there are a number of writers who have said that they believe they've been abducted by some kind of extraterrestrial. And yet, in therapy, they see human beings in military uniforms. And they came to the conclusion that the military is doing these abductions to learn about human beings who might have been abducted. The other theory is that since so much of the psychological experimentation in the 1950s and the early 1960s, this has been proven. I can tell you one case that, that, that caused a lot of deaths, um, was the result of research from the Nazi concentration camps, Josef Mengele and his compatriots, that the psychological stress testing encouraged the military to engage in this to see how human beings would react to certain kinds of stress. So, for example, it's an example, true story. Um, the head of Army Intelligence, this is 1953, the head of Army Intelligence G2 doped the morning coffee of the Pentagon general staff, this is in his autobiography, with LSD, to see if the United States could dope the Soviet general staff with LSD and render them ineffectual. That's what happened in the Pentagon, in the United States, in 1953 mm -hmm. with LSD. So, and that came out of the concentration camps. Um, in, at Harvard, in the late 50s, um, a young man, a 17-year-old boy, was given severe by Dr. Robert Murray, a psychologist, severe psychological stress tests, severe, it broke him. The Dr. Robert Murray was studying the stress tests from the concentration camps and experimented on this young boy. This young boy was called Ted Kaczynski, and oh, he became the, the Unabomber. Unabomber. Sure. Well, that is wild. You blew my mind with that one. Uh, the film, by the way, if people want to keep an eye out for it, is supposed to begin production next year. It's going to be called White Mountains. Why do you think, whatever the motivation of the uh, Obamas here, whether it's furthering the cause of um, alien abduction or whether it's uh, the fact that uh, Barack Obama may know something that uh, that we don't th and he's trying to uh, at least be on the tip of the spear of the disclosure movement. Why do you think he didn't do more to further this cause in his eight years as president? Why would he wait until he's no longer the commander in chief and just a private citizen to use uh, that bully pulpit, which, which is considerably less prominent? to take that time to do this. That's what he told Fallon. Mm. He said, they told me not to talk about it, and I can't. So somebody was the boss of Obama who said, Commander-in-Chief, you can't talk about this. The question is why we can't talk about it and what it really means, and does it go to the very nature of who we are, where we came from, and who was here before us? For example, we know this is not supposition, this is not conspiracy theory, this is not anything to do with religion. We know as a fact that there was an entire civilization on this planet before ours. We know that. We know it from the Bible, right? Noah's flood. Mm -hmm. We know it from the fact that, that at one point in prehistory, the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea flowed into each other. That was the Great Flood. We know from all kinds of other cultures, the, the poem Gilgamesh, Native American lore, that there was a great flood that wiped away an entire civilization. Plato tells us that, right? That was the story of Atlantis. Great flood wiped away a civilization. So there was a civilization before ours. Earth has existed for 3.5 billion years. Modern, hu well, human beings, right, have been here maybe 200,000 years. What happened for all those millions of years? Could there have been other civilizations 
for humanity that were wiped away and is COVID and a dying planet ending this civilization? Hmm. Is that what Obama's message ultimately is? Well, that's uh, certainly wild and uh, certainly interesting to think about. Another uh, situation that uh, is changing the way humans behave on this planet and potentially the future of human civilization is sort of the sister issues of automation and artificial intelligence. Andrew Yang, when he was running for president, he made automation and all of the jobs that uh, are going to be displaced Due to automation, he made this a uh, big a big issue. Here he was talking with Joe Rogan during his presidential campaign about automation. I spent the last seven years running an organization that I had started called Venture for America. And we helped create about 3,000 jobs in Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis, Birmingham, New Orleans, other cities around the country. And I saw that we're pouring water into a bathtub that has a giant hole ripped in the bottom. And that for every 5, 10, 50 jobs that my entrepreneurs are going to create, we're going to lose 5, 10, 50,000 jobs. It's not something that people intuitively suspect could be a real issue either. It's it's one of the, one, the ones where you kind of have to like go shake people like, hey, look at this. This is coming. There's a cliff. We're going towards this cliff. It's, it's darker still in that. So uh, when I was digging into the numbers, I found that it's not this – cliff that we're heading towards. It's actually more of a curve that we're on. Uh, What I've been telling people is that we're in the third inning now, where one of the main reasons why Donald Trump won in 2016 is that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs that were based in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, all the swing states he needed to win in the center of the country. And a lot of that was just manufacturing work. And if you go to a factory, you'll see it's just giant robot arms as far as the eye can see. So Mm. it's not just that you have artificial intelligence on the horizon. It's that we've been eating away at the most common jobs in the U.S. economy uh, for almost 20 years now. And it's just now hitting a point where it's pushing more and more unskilled men in particular out of the workforce. Last week, uh, we're now seeing automation and artificial intelligence not only take the place of uh, manufacturing workers. We're seeing it take the place of jobs like bartenders. And uh, about a week or two ago, this new AI chat bot went online, which can write. And uh, professors are raising the very serious concern that this is making it indistinguishable to tell if an essay was written by a person or by artificial intelligence. There are already a lot of fears in newsrooms across the country that this could replace journalists and writers in all sorts of different fields. And uh, a lot of folks are saying this could replace a lot of uh, paralegals and even attorneys be- So, because these AI chatbots might be doing all sorts of legal work that's kind of tedious, that's currently done by attorneys. What is your take on where we stand with open AI right now and where we're going? Well, I think you're absolutely right. I'm a professor of English and a lawyer, and I am obsoleted on both professions. <laughs> I mean, we were playing with open, um, open AI GPT um, uh, 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 the other week, and what was so astounding was whatever problem we gave it – I mean, this was mediocre writing. It's not uh, – this is not a brilliance, but it's passable writing. And so since I, I taught composition all last year, um, I was comparing the student compositions to the AIs, and I'm saying if only these students had gone on to open, open AI, they would have written A papers. So – College composition courses, high school composition courses, those professors are obsoleted by this because it tells you what you're doing wrong. Imagine this correcting. You write something, the AI corrects it, sends it back. Who needs a teacher? You're seeing it in black and white. Gets worse. What if all kinds of decisions, San Francisco scrapped a plan, but it was they were considering it, of having robot police who could inflict harm on human beings. Maybe they wouldn't shoot you with with a gun, but they could deliver bombs. They could deliver gas. Sure. Right? 
breaking Isaac Asimov's first law of robotics. Human beings may not hurt human um, robots may not hurt human beings. But imagine what if what if there were a super intelligent computer that in order to obtain a simulation of consciousness had to get human beings from all walks of life, all races, all religions, all ages, all types, all experiences to deliver their deepest thoughts, hopes, aspirations, fears, loves into that computer. What if that existed? It does. It's called TikTok. What if that computer, what if TikTok, if you look at it not from the the user point of view, not from, oh, the Chinese, the Chinese, not from that, but looked at TikTok strictly from the computer's point of view. What if that were gaining sentience? And to do it, it needed raw human experience. That's TikTok. That uh, It's true. It makes you wonder where we're going. We're going to continue in a moment with uh, Bill Burns. We'll talk about AI and some uh, interesting things about where we may be heading on the planet Mars and what that might mean for the future of human understanding of that planet and any civilizations that may have once existed there. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. by the killers. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're talking with New York Times best-selling author William Burns. Uh, he happens to be a, a, a best-selling author many times over. Books like The Day After Roswell, still just as relevant today. Also happens to be an attorney. Also happens to be a Ph.D. Uh, you could say many things about Bill Burns. The one thing you can't say is that he is not uh, qualified to address some of the things that, uh, that we're talking about this hour. There was an article uh, a decade ago in MIT News. Headline in this article was, Are You a Martian? And it asks the question and explores, in order to detect signs of past or present life on Mars, they are looking into a strategy which would be to search for DNA or RNA. The publication The New Scientist had had a story that was headlined a short time after that, Martian Genome. Is there DNA on the red planet? Now, whether it's the U.S. space program, whether it's private sector space travel or other governments like the UAE or China, so much of the future of space exploration has to deal with Mars. So where is this discussion of DNA coming from? Bill, where are we with exploring Mars and uh, who has first who's brought up this idea of there potentially being DNA on Mars? Well, the the first person uh, was Seth Shostak over at SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, said that um, as the universe, as the as the solar system, not the universe, but as the solar system after it formed, Mars had water. Mars had an atmosphere, and Mars had water. Uh, Mars didn't have a nickel iron core, so the sun's um, rays we're able to blow the atmosphere away, Earth has that core, so it kept our atmosphere, it kept the electromagnetic um, envelope around the planet. But with Mars, the atmosphere was blown away. 
But at some point in its early history, there was water on Mars. There may still be. In fact, a couple of things that the rover has been saying, the Curiosity rover, is that uh, NASA thinks that the rover might have found a Martian lake near one of the poles. If that's the case, and we could sample that water, assuming it exists, if we could sample that water, and if there is DNA or protein or something in that water that is Earth-like DNA, that means that life on Earth probably started when chunks of Mars were blown off in the early days when asteroids were slamming into Mars and they slammed chunks of Mars off and they fell into, they fell onto the Arctic. They fell into the Arctic Ocean. And so it could well be that life on planet Earth was seeded biologically by remnants from Mars. That would mean that human beings are actually Martians and if we can send, and if we can get a sample of whatever biological material or DNA is in water on Mars, we would know for sure that humans are not native to this planet. What do you think the reaction would be like in Earth circles and in the scientific community if we were to ever find human DNA on Mars? It would be akin to if... When we go out in the universe and we now have, we are a space-faring nation now, a space-faring culture. We have our two rovers that are all the way out beyond the solar system now. What if we find out, as Avi Loeb at Harvard Smithsonian has said, what if we find out that there are other life forms in the universe and they're human? What does it mean? If we find humanoid life forms throughout the universe, that we mm. are not just human beings on planet Earth, but we are actually the extraterrestrials. That would be wild. Uh, we've heard a great deal about the UAP disclosure movement as of late. Congress has uh, recently changed how whistleblowers within the Pentagon and within the government at large should be reporting UAPs. There uh, are some, uh, there was a report issued by the Director of National Intelligence. Apparently this is going to be a more standard thing. What do you see as the next step in the UAP slash UFO disclosure movement? What can folks that want to know more look forward to in the near future? A conversation that was told to me by Mickey Rooney's eighth wife. You know, Mickey Rooney married eight times. His eighth wife was still alive. Her father worked for Skunk, Lockheed Skunk Works at um, Area 51 and um, also was at Roswell in the 1940s. Um, the head of Skunk Works, when he introduced himself, when he said hello to the father, Red Chamberlain was the person's name. When he said hello to Red Chamberlain at a restaurant, Red Chamberlain's daughters were there. And he said to them, your father knows more about UFOs than anybody, but the government files will never be released because the world's governments and religions would collapse. And the person who said this was the head of Lockheed Skunk Works, who developed the SR-71 and developed and helped develop Area 51 in Nevada. Wow. And I mean, that was a... And to this day, those those uh, uh, now they're not girls anymore. They're older women. Now they tell that story of that meeting with their father and the head of Lockheed Skunk Works talking about UFOs in their presence. Do you see uh, President Biden uh, making any major steps in terms of uh, of this? Obviously, he's been in Washington for almost half a century. I would think that uh, even prior to being president, there's a good chance, given his work on the Foreign Relations Committee and his work as vice president, he was probably privy to a lot of information that uh, that the rank-and-file American wouldn't be privy, privy to. Over the next two years, do you see him being the tip of the iceberg on any of this stuff? Yes, because, yes, because he's no longer in the government. Mm-hmm. See, he's taking the heat off Joe Biden. Joe Biden's best friend in the Senate— 
was Harry Reid. Harry Reid was the senator in whose district was Area 51. Harry Reid knew more than anyone. And remember, remember we saw those TikTok UFOs from right. um, San Diego? The TikTok. Who was yeah. president? Yeah. During the release of, the, right. of those videos. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I, I did, uh, maybe I misspoke, but I meant to say President Biden. Do you see Biden being, uh, moving the ball forward on UAP He's trying to find a way. Uh-huh. I would guess that Biden is trying to find a way. Even if Biden came in saying, you know, Hillary was right, um, uh, uh, Andrew Yang is right, we, 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 we have to prepare for what's coming, <clears throat> he needed cover. Barack Obama is that cover. Interesting. Uh, well, that is, uh, that's certainly uh, a fascinating, fascinating uh, thought. A, an incredible conversation, Bill. It's always a delight whenever we, uh, whenever we speak. Let me ask you the question that I'm always, uh, that I'm always uh, confronted with whenever we speak. If people are interested in furthering their understanding of this subject, which is the best of your books that they should start with? Do you recommend The D- Day After Roswell? Do you recommend Day UFOs? After Roswell, and- Day After Roswell, certainly. But another book is A History of the United States Presidency Told in Terms of UFOs. And that book is at Skyhorse. It's called UFOs and the White House. And it tells the very first story of a UFO encounter at Valley Forge with George Washington. And you'd say, Bill, how do you know that you weren't alive at Valley Forge? George Washington wrote about it in his journal. That was the first UFO encounter at Valley Forge with President George Washington. It goes all the way all the way to this to our current president number 46 and it is all the ways ufo's interfered with and changed american policy including franklin delano roosevelt and the development of the atomic bomb bill we're going to have to end it there i could talk with you for hours it's always a treat uh, appreciate it very much hope you have a great new year we'll look forward to chatting quite a bit in uh, 2023 and happy new year to you Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of my conversation with Bill Burns, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You can comment on anything else we've covered as well or anything else you might have questions about. Uh, Those of you that we're holding for a while, we'll get to you first. In the meantime, your influence counts. Make sure you use it.